Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. Welcome to another Thursday night here on the Lower East Side, Thursday evening here on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And uh, we're getting near the end of the year, and very, pretty close to the end of the year, and pretty close to the end of the mayoral term the third mayoral term of one Mike Bloomberg. So I thought it appropriate, and we alluded this to this a couple of weeks ago, to do a little retrospective and kind of take stock of, uh, of a uh, three-term mayor, 12 years of Mike Bloomberg, which I think has been a very interesting mayoralty. Uh, so on the show tonight, we have with us some Bloomberg insiders. Jonathan Greenspun joining us, who's commissioner at... Uh, was the Commissioner of the Community Affairs Unit, uh, Community Assistance Unit at one time. I don't know exactly what the name was, but he'll help us out with that. But he was with Bloomberg from the very beginning. And later on in the show, we're going to have Mitchell Moss, who is a professor at New York University, the Wagner School of Public Service, the Rudin Transportation Institute, and uh, really covered Bloomberg closely from a policy perspective. So we're going to get both sides, the political, the policy, and hopefully it's going to be a great discussion as usual, try and bring you a little bit of the under- the hood, little the inside between the lines. And uh, Jonathan Greenspun is with us, and I want to thank him for coming on once again to join us here on Spin Class. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you so much, Michael. Always a pleasure to be with you. Fantastic. So I should also mention our sponsor, which is Beckerman, Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs. And if you want your message told, do it with Beckerman. Always important to mention that sponsor, right, Jonathan? Absolutely. Uh, we, we love public affairs. We love public <laughs> affairs. And I should mention, uh, Jonathan, in his post-governmental life, has a, is a managing director at Mercury Public Affairs. Uh, Mercury, one of the large multi-state national firms that uh, also gets people's message out and allows them to make their voices heard in the halls of government. But right now we're talking, we're going to rewind, Jonathan. I want to rewind back to 2001. And even before, when we think of 2001 these days, we think of the September 11th attacks, obviously, 9-11. But before there was that attack on primary day, there was a mayoral race for the post-Giuliani era. And uh, why don't you give us a little insight about how you came to Team Bloomberg, how you came on that first campaign, and what what things were like back then as far as uh, it was not expected that Mike Bloomberg was going to emerge victorious in, uh, to succeed Rudy Giuliani? Uh, no, I think it was a surprise to everyone. In fact, I was just reminded of the fact that um, uh, on election night 2001, uh, the mayor had instructed um, his campaign to um, rent a much smaller venue. Usually we'd get a grand ballroom inside of one of the major uh, New York City hotels, but uh, this time he, he asked to get a smaller venue. It was at B.B. King's on uh, 42nd Street uh, because his, it was his anticipation that he was not going to win, and um, they wanted what was going to be a, a rather muted um, uh, <laughs> a muted um, election night uh, gathering. In the end, um, he did win. Um, when I joined the campaign, I think Mike Bloomberg was polling somewhere in the low 20s, uh, even though the Democrats had not gotten through their primary, it was generally understood that um, Freddie Ferrer and Mark Green would most likely emerge. Um, when 9-11 happened, uh, the campaign actually took a, uh, a hiatus. All the campaigns uh, stopped for the two weeks between September 11th and uh, the rescheduled primary. And it was at that moment that I think many of us, the mayor included, felt that this is an absolute game changer. This was something that was absolutely catastrophic, the scope of which was still unknown at the time. But New York City was uh, reeling after this, and there was an understanding that, that, that the dynamic had completely changed and that potentially, if, uh, if done right, uh, Mike Bloomer could emerge a victorious as mayor in that race. So if I could take you back even a step further... Okay, Mike Bloomberg, successful, unbelievably successful entrepreneur, uh, left Wall Street uh, at with a, a nice severance in his pocket and parlayed that into being one of the world's richest men and had a very successfully uh, eponymously named uh, 
communications company, financial data company. Why, what prompted him to run for mayor of New York City? Well, there are a number of uh, stories, um, some of them uh, legend, <laughs> others true. I mean, you know, give, give I, us, give us all. You know, I we have a very educated audience. They can sort through the fact and the myth. Well, I, I think that uh, Mike Bloomberg is a guy that throughout his life has always thought big, and um, I, as legend has it, and I think this is true because I've heard him tell a version of this story that sounded pretty similar, is that he was, you know, he had achieved, um, I wouldn't say overnight success with, the, with, with Bloomberg LP, but it was certainly very quick success, and, and the success just kept building and building and building to the point where he was, um, I think, a billionaire in just a matter of, of, of he certainly was a millionaire in the matter of, of, of months, maybe even years, um, and then a billionaire shortly thereafter. Um, and, you know, he would always say that the jobs that he would like to have would be head of the World Bank or head of, I think, maybe head of the International Monetary Fund. No, I think it was the World Bank, actually. Okay, but World the, Bank. Yeah. So he wanted World Bank um, Secretary of the U.N. or Mayor of New York City. Those are the three things that I heard him say. So you know, this is a guy who thought big, and um, you know those are obviously three uh, major uh, positions. And so uh, he had been talking to a number of people, uh, some advisors and friends, and people had encouraged him to do it. He ran as a Republican because he never thought that he would get a fair shake on a Democratic line. Um, as we now know, uh, Mike Bloomberg is fiscally conservative, but he's socially liberal. Um, he was registered as a Republican shortly after the, his victory in the second term. Uh, he uh, he changed his uh, uh, registration to independent. Um, but those early, I joined the campaign in the summer of 2001. Um, in all candor, I was reluctant to join, not because I didn't like Mike. In fact, I, <laughs> I really took to him in our first meeting. I thought he was... Um, I thought he was a great guy and someone who I was very intrigued by in terms of his style. Um, but I had just gotten off uh, the Lazio campaign the year prior, and that was a very, very tough loss for me personally. Uh, Hillary Clinton beat Rick Lazio by 12 points on Election Day. There were exit polls that were suggesting it was going to be neck and neck. And um, uh, we, got our, we got our clock clean. That was Rick Lazio for Senate. Rick Lazio for Senate. In 2000. That was supposed to be a marquee matchup, actually. I, I supposed to be, and it ended up being a blowout. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, I walked away from that cam campaign deeply dejected. And so when I heard another campaign, I don't think it really mattered what the campaign was. I just don't think I had it in my uh, kishkas at that time to really join another campaign. Um, but um, uh, through some convincing uh, on the part of Bill Cunningham, who ended up becoming the, major, the mayor's uh, communications director back then, uh, I joined. This is actually a very true story. I was sitting in, the, in, 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 a, in a conference room inside of 156 East 56th Street, which is where the campaign headquarters were located. And I was giving Bill all my reasons about why I was reluctant to join, and he was giving me all his arguments about why I should join. And I remember these words coming out of his mouth. He said, listen, I understand you have some doubts about this guy's chances, but what's the worst thing that could happen? You'll be friends with a guy who's worth $5 billion. That's exactly what he said. And I said to myself, I don't know who this guy is, but he's starting to make a lot of sense. <laughs> and uh, I, I, uh, I think I signed on the dotted line shortly thereafter. So the Irish guy lures the Jewish guy with promises of riches. I think that happens all the time. In fact, you know, they're very, very, you know, especially a just guy to like put Bill. it in the New York political context. <laughs> I think that that's the that's the way I would I would term it. At least if I was you know, tweeting it or the like. Right. But uh, we're talking to Jonathan Greenspun here on Spin Class. I'm your host, Michael Fragan. We're sponsored by Beckerman, and we're getting a little bit of a uh, a little throwback to the early Bloomberg years, the early Bloomberg time. And Jonathan, you know, we've both worked with. Uh, new candidates or people who are kind of getting used to the rigors of politics and the campaign trail. And sometimes it's not easy that they, you know, the con candidates can do things that might be uh, a little bit impolitic and, and the like. And, you know, you, you kind of say, oh, you know, that's not the way we do things. we gotta got to make sure that you do everything appropriate on the campaign trail. Uh, do you have to did that exist back in 2001 with Mike Bloomberg as a first-time candidate? Oh, it was actually very shocking for me because I had only worked for what I would say traditional political candidates and, you know... Professional you politicians. Side, yeah, professional politicians. And so, you know, to me, they, they, they understand the relationship that you're an advisor, you're an employee, and they actively seek your opinion and you give it. And most of the time they'll listen to you. Sometimes they won't. 
Um, with Mike Bloomberg, it was a completely different experience. And Stu Lozer, our mutual friend, has written about this recently and has been talking about it. That with the mayor, um, it's really don't tell me, it's show me. Uh, he really does not take anything you tell him, especially in the early stages of a relationship, at face value. He wants you to prove it. He, when you when you come to him and make an argument that he should say this or he should take this position or he should do this thing, um, he's not going to do what a typical politician does, which is just do it. He's actually going to he's going to push back. He's going to want to know why. He's going to challenge you. He certainly challenged me. Um, I remember at the time one of the first things we were doing is, is we were role-playing on a, an interview that he was going to do with a widely known Jewish newspaper, and I was giving him some of the suggested answers. And I can say, you know, without exception, um, he challenged me on each and every answer, wanting to know why. Why couldn't he say this? Why couldn't he say that? And again, I think it was not that he didn't want to listen to me or that he had a tin ear, but he's just not, it's not in his personality to just accept the answer, well, this is what everybody else says, and, you know, you should do the same. He's just not one of those guys. He's someone, and then I learned this subsequently in the, you know, four and a half years I would serve in his administration, which is when you come to him and you said, hey, um, you know, you ought to say this, you ought to take this position, um, he was someone that would always challenge, he would always engage you. And I, I really, really enjoyed that, because what it did was is that it made you um, have to be very, very sure of your opinion. And so um, that's something I really enjoyed and I really miss. So a lot of people say that the Bloomberg phenomenon of three terms of Bloomberg was entirely about the money. And a lot of the critics say, okay, he bought he bought three elections. Uh, and as somebody who's been involved in politics and that myself, I know that that's just not possible. There are plenty of people out there who have spent enormous amounts of money or enormous amount of money per vote to try and win election, and they haven't done it successfully. And we can think of a lot of local people, I don't want to name names right here, but you know, you're welcome to, who have been unsuccessful. Mike Bloomberg managed three times to win in a city that was definitely demographically stacked against him. And uh, you know, maybe the third time was, was certainly more difficult uh, than the second time, and the second time was certainly a lot easier than the first time. But uh, but he managed to do it, and anybody who can put together that kind of team obviously has some political acumen. So so how would you rate him as a politician or as a non-politician? He probably likes to call himself a non-politician. Um, I think people don't see him as a conventional politician. Uh, I think that conventional politicians tend to do what's safe as opposed to what's as opposed to what's bold and innovative and controversial. I think typical politicians tell people what they want to hear, not what they need to know. Um, and uh, getting to the money aspect, I think your assessment is right. I think that the money certainly helped. Um, the money allowed Well, we can, him... we can go beyond simply helped. I no, think no, it was no, probably no, a little more than that, right? <laughs> listen, I, I think that you would be hard-pressed to say that he bought any of the elections because there are people who have, who have said that. Um, because if you think about the fact that he is not a traditional, he is not a, a Democrat in the traditional sense, and yet he was able to win, albeit in some cases by very small margins. He beat Mark Green uh, by, um, I don't know, 47,000 votes in 2001. He handedly beat uh, Fernando Ferrer uh, in 2005, and then in 2009, um, uh, he beat, after spending about $110 million uh, on that campaign, uh, he beat Bill Thompson by about four and a half points. Um, 2009 was a, was a very difficult year for incumbents in general. There were a lot of people who got thrown out that year. Um, I would argue, though, that if the mayor were running for a fourth term this time, I think it would be almost impossible for him to win regardless of what he spent. Because we in New York City... It is part of our DNA, and there are people who certainly disagree with this, but part of our DNA um, is, has a gene that, that prefers term limits, that uh, New Yorkers like to say, look, you've done a good job, I enjoy what you did, you were great while you did it, but it's time to give somebody else a chance. It's just who we are, and I think it's part and parcel of what we as a city has become, have become. Uh, so, um, you know, the money certainly, certainly was a factor in the, in the breadth and scope of his campaigns. But I don't think it was the be-all, end-all. And that brings me to, I guess, a specific question with regard to, in your mind, a potential uh, legacy 
issue is that the third terms are never great. They're never well remembered. Ed Koch had that had that syndrome and and others. Uh, was it a mistake for him to push to ch- overturn term limits and to push for that third term? Or would his legacy have been greater as a two-term mayor going out uh, at top? And you know, I think his, his approval ratings are very high still, but there seems to be that you know that taste uh, left in the mouth of a lot of voters, at least as we've seen from this past election. So I think you summed it up. I think you have to, when you look at the third term, I think you have to mix the bitter with the sweet. Um, the bitter being that you know he did something that overturned the will of the people, and it upset a number of people. Um, there were many, many people who were not happy with not only the third term, but how he went about doing it. Um, the sweet, however, is that by all measures, it was not the apocalypse that um, some had predicted it would be. For example, you know, everybody fumbles the ball once in a while, and you know, the city, which is generally seen as um, being managed well with decent city services, you know, in the, in the winter of in the day after uh, in December 26th in 2010, um, you know, there was a, someone dropped the ball in the city uh, by anyone's standard. Even the mayor later uh, said um, the city's response to that blizzard was just uh, was was just atrocious. And so was that his Katrina moment? Uh, no, you can't compare that to Katrina. I mean, it, it, first of all, when you look at the, just the sheer number of deaths in Katrina, I mean, there were people who died as a result. Right. Of I don't say that, that. I don't say that in the sense of the. I don't say that in the sense of the specific natural so, disaster. I, I, I get what you're saying. I, 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 I guess. Well, let me tell you why it's not a Katrina. Okay, because I was going to explain the question a little it's better. Not, no, no, it's not a Katrina moment because if you look at the people who were around in Katrina. First of all, I think it spelled basically the end of George Bush's second term in office. It was the end of Ray Nagin, who was who was the mayor of, of New Orleans. Um, it was the end of a lot of people. Um, the mayor was able to to come back, and you know, as some of his communications people will remind you, there were several um, pretty fierce snowstorms that occurred. Um, later uh, the next year in 2011, which everyone uh, agreed that he handled spectacularly, including one rather large one that, that, that hit in February. And so, you know, what, what happens when you fumble the ball is in the next play you try to score a touchdown, and I think that that's, that's what everyone, that's what everyone uh, recognized. But there were some people who were literally getting out their hammer and chisel ready to, um, you know, begin chiseling his epitaph, uh, uh, political epitaph, that is, um, in, the, in the winter of, uh, in December of 2010. But there have been a lot of successes, and we're beginning to see uh, some of those highlighted this week as he, as he travels across the five boroughs to um, remind everybody what, about what he's done, not just in the last 12 years, but in the last four. So, again, I think it's a mixed bag. I think there were some who were very, very upset at the fact that he had a, a, th- a third term and the way he went about it. But as you said, his poll numbers remain relatively high. And we're talking with Jonathan Greenspun here on Spin Class. I'm your host, Michael Fragan. We're sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations. And, Jonathan, the reason I say just specifically the Katrina moment, and I, I, it came off probably as a little bit of a, of, a, of a dig, is more at the sense of competence, right, of, of, of good government, of functional government out there. And I think that... At least, if you if you look from my perspective, right, the, what did George Bush lose in Katrina? They lost this idea that the Republicans could run the government better. They could be more efficient at running government. They're more capable, uh, less chaos than 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 Democrats. And Mike Bloomberg also ran on that technocratic type of approach, right? Data driven approach. We're going to make government work. We're going to have three one one. We're going to do everything better. We're going to we're, we're going to use all the data to improve everything. We're going to improve the schools. And in one fell swoop, it seemed that the city was paralyzed in this storm, uh, in the blizzard, so much so that nobody even knew who was running the city at the time, right? I, you weren't part of the administration still, so I'm not going to uh, – but I think at the time it was kind of, well, where's the deputy mayor? Where's the mayor? Who's there? Who's not there? And I think that potentially was a – that's why I call it a Katrina moment, not to not to certainly say that it was on the scope or the scale of, of the disaster of Katrina. Well, taking Katrina out of it, I would say this. He built a brand of being a hands-on manager 
who had metrics to measure whether or not agencies were performing well. There was a general understanding of what everybody's job was and, and, and what they needed to do. And in that one moment, um, things broke down. There was a complete uh, communications breakdown. I think the mayor himself said that he was getting bad information about um, both the progress, or turns out lack thereof, of what of what was being cleaned uh, and where. And you know, in this snowstorm, just to tell you how you know you learn from every experience. You know, in, in this in, in any recent in any future snowstorm you're going to have. Everyone should be secure in the knowledge that every single sanitation truck uh, is equipped with GPS and that there are uh, all sorts of cameras that um, a central uh, repository in the emergency operations center can look at. And there are a lot of more scientific ways in which we can find out where trucks are, what streets have been paved and when, and be able to give people as close to real-time information about when they were going to get their street plowed. And that was the problem back then. In 2000. In 2010, um, you had a complete breakdown in communication between agency and City Hall and between City Hall and the public. And so um, it was a rare misstep for him, uh, but one that uh, he certainly paid for politically. So as the commissioner of the Community Assistance Unit, or it was Community Affairs Unit, I think it was it was changed possibly during your tenure? It was changed. Okay. I took it over as the Mayor's Community Assistance Unit, and then several years after I left, it was changed to the Mayor's Community Affairs Office. Okay, so just uh, I'm not sure exactly what the distinction might have been or I, I, if there was any, but maybe better packaging or at least easier to say, fewer syllables. But uh, you were kind of on the front lines of, of the public – feedback towards Bloomberg and the administration, you know, in a sense, you were kind of the eyes and ears of, of the administration trying to bring things back. How do you feel that politically uh, or that the, the feedback from the neighborhoods and from the boroughs was was processed by by City Hall under Mike Bloomberg? There is this reputation out there that he was very Manhattan centric. Well, I'm just going to speak for the years that I was there. Sure. Um, the years that I was there, I was there from his first day in office, January 1st, 2002, until uh, June of 2006. So uh, that was basically through his first re-election. So I think the way I ran the office was um, we were very, very hands-on in terms of learning um, what issues were percolating within various communities, what interests and problems were unique to certain neighborhoods. And I think we were very, very effective of not only understanding what those problems were, but then communicating them to the mayor's office, to the various agencies, where we would then be able to have a dialogue about what we can do to address those problems. And, and I also think one of the more effective things that we did, and um, while I was there, we did over, you know, close to 80 of these, but we, we, we took the mayor out to a variety of neighborhoods. And, and you mentioned Manhattan-centric. I can tell you that when I was there, he did, of the roughly 75, I don't remember the exact number, but we'll call it 75, town hall meetings that we did, uh, two were in Manhattan. Um, we had one in Greenwich Village and another one up in uh, Washington Heights, Inwood area. And um, the rest were in parts of the city that maybe some of your listeners have never heard of. I mean, we brought the mayor to the Logan Street Block Association in Brooklyn. We brought him to the Juniper Valley Civic Association, Juniper Park uh, Civic Association in, um, in, in Queens. Um, a variety of parts of the, you know, um, um, Rosedale, um, uh, all kinds of areas, Staten Island, and you know, what we learned from these town hall meetings were people came with very, very specific issues of concern. So in one particular one in Throg's Neck, which is in the eastern section of the Bronx, um, you know, the issue of overdevelopment was, was really, really in high gear at the time. And while we knew that it was going to come up, I think when the mayor heard the level of desperation on the, those residents, um, he... He took action, and, 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 and at that moment, that night, turned to Amanda Burden, his city planning commissioner, and said, listen, we really need to do something. And so that you know, resulted in a 197A plan that, a, that the local community board had drafted up, and um, shortly thereafter, a downzoning of that area. And so there's a perfect example of a mayor going out, listening to constituents, hearing their problems, and then coming up with problem-solving measures. 
And I think that that was that was really good. I think that that was that's really what government is about. It's about going, having the ability to, to be heard. And I will tell you that even among the most or the more contentious town halls that we ran, and there were a few, um, everyone left there very, very satisfied that the mayor took the time to stay and listen and take the shots. And, you know, I find that about New Yorkers in general. I, I and I, my current uh, capacity, was out in Red Hook last night at a community board meeting on behalf of a, of a client. And, you know, a lot of people had some issues with what we were proposing. And, and you know, it, it reminded me of those great days and, and, and that you can disagree without being disagreeable and, and personal. And in the end, people say some, some mean things to you in a town hall meeting, and then they see you in the, uh, in the hallway afterwards, and they shake your hand and wish you happy holidays. You know, that's sort of New York. That's, that's the way we operate. So I think people appreciated that. They appreciated the fact that the mayor was accessible, the mayor was responsive. And so as long as you're doing that as mayor, you're doing a good job. So, Jonathan, just uh, as we wrap up this segment, just a last interv- uh, last question here, uh, specifically with regard to you being kind of the uh, Jewish lightning rod or the the you know, the head Jew at for the Jewish mayor, and I and I say that with a well stated, with, with a loving <laughs> a loving embrace of of that title. Yeah. Uh, I think that there is this. Uh, I, I guess I guess there is this undercurrent that. Mike Bloomberg leaves office with a strained relationship with many elements in the Jewish community. And perhaps you want to comment on that, because I think certainly when you were around and when I was involved, that that relationship was much closer. Um, I think that is a a perception. But um, I also think that, first of all, I I think there's one issue that has exacerbated that. And, and I have my own feelings on that, which I'm not going to get into in this interview. But so I'll throw it out. Matitsa Papad, and we'll just leave yeah, it at that. Yeah, I, I, I will just say this. There have been allegations that the mayor refused to meet the community during this. And I can just tell you, I was at too many meetings, and I have the photos to prove it, um, that there were absolutely meetings in which the mayor heard what people had to say. So I'll just throw that out. For anybody... Again, I, can, I will confirm that as well. And again, I, I left the mayor's office in June of 2006, so for everybody who's going to say no, because in 2009 I tried to get a meeting, that's somebody else's problem. Um, <laughs> so I, I would say this. Um, I think that... Um, I think that there are some who feel that he wasn't responsive, and, and I, I, I regret that. I, 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 don't, I will just tell you this. The mayor does care about each and every one of his constituents. He doesn't play favorites. Um, he is um, very attuned to the fact that New Yorkers have needs and that he tries his best and his, his constituents and his, rather his, um, his staff try his best. Um, you know, I think that the one thing that hasn't changed since I left is that Fred Kreisman remains uh, at the Community uh, Affairs Unit, and I think Fred's done an outstanding, outstanding. job. Outstanding, absolutely. And, and I think he is someone who has a reputation of being responsive to all, which is to say that you can get him on the phone. One thing I would say is, is I don't think access to this mayor was ever in question even after I left. If people wanted a meeting, I think they got the meeting. They may not have received the answer that they always wanted, but I believe that the access was always there. I think that things go from bad to really bad when any mayor denies access to a particular community. I am proud to say that in the four and a half years that I was there in the mayor's office, and I would say with confidence um, in the years uh, after I left, I believe that there was access to the Bloomberg administration. Again, some people access isn't enough. They feel like they every you know they feel well. There like was the comment. Let me just add, and I I, I want to be mindful of the time. Is that there was the comment to the Atlantic? I was just specifically referring to of the ten thousand black hatters, right? Who wants the ten thousand black hatters screaming outside your office? And I think a lot of people took of that as a kind of a pejorative type of comment. Um, you know, kind of showed his distance from from the from the community, uh, in a sense. And that you know, I think that that has kind of stuck in the craw of quite a few people out there. Uh, you know, perhaps I'm just speaking to the people that I speak to. And well, listen uh, again, that happened long after you I. You have was a ream gone. of paper. Uh, the, ma- the, one, the, the mayor or the half mayor, a ream. Anything I ran out of paper. I'm responsibility for his comments, and you know, I noticed that in the last couple of. Uh, 
of days. Um, his press secretaries have been on television, and you know you have someone like Errol Lewis at New York One who you know went back at the tape and found this gaffe that he said about Dr. Atkins and sure. this gaffe that he said about this. And I would just echo the sentiments of Ed Schuyler and, and Stu Loser, who, who just say, listen, you know what? Everyone is allowed to have a bad day and say something that, you know, they shouldn't have said that was inelegant or impolite or to some offensive. And, um, you know, listen, we're all human. And, and you know, sometimes people say things and uh, it offends people. But I, I would like everyone – look, I, I – I, I, I am a supporter of this mayor. I was a supporter of this mayor. I think that when the legacy of the 12 years of Mike Bloomberg are written in the history books, um, it will be a legacy that not only did great things when he was there, but also did a lot of great things that planted the seeds for a lot of flowers to bloom many years from now uh, that my children will understand when they walk past the park where they're enjoying some amenity that New York City has to offer that they will understand and appreciate that it was Mike Bloomberg who did it. Uh, many, many years before. Well, that's very flowery and eloquent. Jonathan, I want to thank you for coming on. And obviously, we could have gone on for, for a lot longer with regard to recapping 12 years. But thanks a lot for your insight. Thank you so much, Michael. Hope to have you back. And uh, we'll uh, we'll do it soon. Take care. Okay, this is Spin Class. And I want to move on to our next guest. We have Professor Mitchell Moss, who's the Henry Hart Rice Professor of Urban Policy and Planning, teaches and does research on urban planning and politics at the Wagner School at New York University. Welcome to Spin Class, Mitchell. Thank you. Good to hear from you, Michael. So you have been a a really keen observer of Bloomberg uh, over the time, and you've kind of written about his transformation and his incredible abilities as uh, to really transform the city. So as a as a professor and as an observer of urban policy, how would you rate the 12 years of Michael Bloomberg in the pantheon of New York City mayors. Well, there's no doubt that Bloomberg is going to be the mayor who changed New York in its physical structure by rebuilding the waterfront, by taking industrial property and putting it into real use. And more importantly, I think, guiding us from the dark days after September 11. Uh, In 2002, when he took office, no one really ever thought that New York would recover fully. They thought they would be lucky if the airports reopened. Uh, the Bloomberg administration has transformed Lower Manhattan, and we tend to forget how much of Lower Manhattan was not only devastated, but the lack of hope for it. And now it's one of the more rapidly growing parts of our city. So I, I think the net effect of Mike Bloomberg and physical development is going to shape the city for the next century. He also got control of the schools. Now, every previous mayor, Koch and Dinkins and Giuliani, tried to do it. He did it. And he got it twice because the legislature had to renew it after the first five years. Uh, I think that the Bloomberg legacy is going to be really appreciated over time because it takes uh, time out of over to realize how much he accomplished. Would you say, Mitchell, and and you've kind of cut, if you don't mind me characterizing it, as a kind of centrist path in the city, uh, you know, pro-development, but yet, you know, you have certainly not, I wouldn't call you a conservative. I think that that's uh, uh, certainly, you know, kind of have that New York centrism and sensibility about you. Uh, would you say that the election of Bill de Blasio and possibly the the emergence of Melissa Mark Burrito at, as a speaker, if that's actually going to happen on January 8th, we're not sure. We'll discuss that a little bit later in the show. Uh, is a repudiation of Mike Bloomberg? No, I think that Mike Bloomberg has had 12 years. And what's occurred is that during this 10, 12 years, you know, he's changed the city, but he also, I think, you know, was part of a period when there was a genuine sense that we needed to rebuild and renew the city. Now, I think the Democrats who had been out of office for 20 years, you know, were naturally going to reassert themselves. The Republican Party in New York doesn't really exist. It's a series of independent enclaves. Rudy got it for eight years. Mike had it for 12. But that's not a party that has any capacity to win citywide elections unless you have someone like Giuliani Giuliani who came in because of crisis. And so did Bloomberg. And so it's not an accident. And the Democratic primary is always one where the most liberal person wins. That's why Messenger and Green and Ferrer and then Bill Thompson. And it's not surprising that de Blasio won because he was the most consistently progressive candidate. Uh, 
And now I think it's important to realize that, you know, that uh, Loda got, you know, fewer votes than McCain or uh, Romney. And, you know, it's very hard to believe, but um, that the independents basically, you know, didn't stay home. This was a very low turnout election. It was a very high primary election, but 700,000 people came for the primary, but the low turnout was because it wasn't really contested. Loda uh, was is a very good manager and a brilliant guy in terms of the MTA and is a you know I think deputy mayor but not a great candidate. The new Democratic kind of alignment in New York is going to discover how tough it is to run the city because they don't their talent. Look, they've picked the oldest budget director in my memory. They have a 70-year-old police commissioner. They brought in a 68-year-old deputy mayor for human services. They need to have an assisted living office more than pre-K for that team. <laughs> That's very, very interesting way to put it. Uh, with regard to one thing you've talked about, and I know your transformation that, that we've talked about has not really just been about the real estate industry, right? Bloomberg no, the of, whole city. Look, the New York the Times is a front-page story today. The city's population has changed. This is a city where we welcome people. This is a different city than it was in demography and development. But let's be serious. No one lived in the Williamsburg waterfront until Mike Bloomer became mayor. No one really lived on the west side, far west side, where we now have the high line of the community there. There are parts of Coney Island that are going to be shaped over the next 20 years. There are areas you know, that were neglected, like the Hunts Point part of Queens. So the changes that he set in motion are going to be defined the city for the next 50 years. How did he get these things done where others failed? Well, first of all, he cared about them. Secondly, you know, most other mayors really didn't initiate land use. They waited for things to happen. And Bloomberg with Dockdorf and Steele Lieber had a very different approach. They didn't wait for a private developer to say, I want you to rezone it. They said, now in weak times, let's prepare for the future. So they actually took the initiative and did massive zoning, and that's now creating the conditions for new investment. I think that they say that, what is it, like nine, I mean, really a huge percentage of the city has been rezoned in the last 12 years. Yeah. What's the actual number? It's at least, you know, 35%. The, the key point about this is that we've taken places where no one went. People are afraid to go to the area around the meat market and other places, and now we've made them one of the greatest locations. And the other part is they made great investments. For example, the Whitney Museum is moving from its very beautiful but narrow building and Somatis Avenue down to the corner of 14th Street. This is going to change that area. The Brooklyn Bridge Park and Governor's Island were taken from the state. The state of New York has no interest in doing anything in New York City that costs them money. Bloomberg said if we can control it, we'll pay for it. And so these stole parks were rebuilt by the Bloomberg administration. Now, he had a number of high-profile losses in the development side, particularly the Olympics. If, and if the you're stadium. batting 1,000, that means you're hitting <laughs> against weak pitching. Anyone but Ted Williams in his best, in his whole career had, you know, got a, had an on-base average of 482. Well, that means one out of two times. If you are only getting on base, that means you're not going for a real thing. So he tried for big things. So he tried seriously, I think, for mayor alleged control. He won. They did get some phenomenal changes, and people don't realize this, you know, in pension reform. The, some of the things they didn't get done, whether the state and the west side didn't have enough support. Congestion pricing was something which, again, did not have the support. But, by the way, it's always important to recognize that, you know, what he did get, he got about $6.5 billion for the state to improve our school construction authority. And the massive investment in school renovation construction was because of the money they got from there. Uh, there were some other things they did early on in the administration which have been forgotten. They got the state to take over the payment of what is known as the MAC debt, which the city otherwise had to pay. So there were some really smart things they did. But, um, you know, if you, you know, you ask people what other mayors did, Giuliani obviously did a great job on crime. What's interesting about Bloomberg is that he did things on public health that no one ever thought of since the 19th century. He took the Board of Health, which was created to fight cholera and whooping cough, and he's now fighting 21st century diseases. <coughs> this is terrific. The other part is that, and something which nobody realizes, is that there are parks in New York which have been kind of neglected, and they rebuilt it. For example, McCarran Park now has ice skating and swimming pools reopened. The, the parks of New York you know, are one of the great assets because people live in small spaces. They don't have big backyards. They're not like the wealthy people of Woodmere and Lawrence. And so I know you have to go to parks to get any fresh air, and they've been improving them. 
Yeah, I, I will say that that's certainly something that he has spent a, a tremendous amount of time on. Uh, but he inherited his parks commissioner, right? Uh, Henry Stern was a uh, was not the Bloomberg game. Well, he, you know, Henry Stern was commissioner under Koch and under Giuliani, but he put in Benepe, who had been hired, you know, and he'd been a lifer there. And Benepe was the original commissioner, and then he had Veronica White come in, and you know, then they had Sandy. But what's more important is that they understood that you had to invest in amenities. This is the first time we've had a mayor who realized that making New York attractive to live was important to making people want to be here. If they wanted to live here, then the firms would want to be near them. Okay. And Mitch, we're talking to Mitchell Moss of uh, New York University Wagner School. Just two last questions for you, Mitchell, uh, just because there's a great rundown on the Bloomberg legacy here. Uh, people will criticize him, number one, for NYCHA and uh, public housing not enough attention, underfunded, and uh, not necess- and a tremendous backlog with regard to with regard to work being done, billions of dollars sitting in accounts that not being spent. What 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 responsibility does he have for that? Well, first of all, NYCHA is you know, a very very complex organization because it was created with federal funds, which went to localities, and some of the land is severely underused. If you live in NYCHA housing, you get very low-cost parking. Drive across any NYCHA facility, whether it's in Red Hook or up in East Harlem, they have a lot of land that's used for parking that is the cheapest parking in all of Manhattan, and the city wanted to put it to use to generate more revenue. The federal government has cut back on its support for public housing, and so there's, there's no they have to find new revenue streams. He tried that. They found out people were opposed to it. Well, they have some weakness there. Now, the management structure of NYCHA is always had people who are highly paid members of a board. Uh, it's not clear why that's the case. They also have they've changed the board around. But you know that you know that's one of those organizations which has deep structural needs for money, and it probably needs far more attention. But what's striking is that NYCHA is far safer today as a place to live in terms of crime and safety, but it's still got lots of other flaws, and I think that, you know, it's going to, you know, a mayor doesn't do everything, so let it, that that's a challenge. The new mayor can bring a new team in, let them try it. Okay, and last question, Mitchell, and I really want to thank you for your time, is with regard to the big structural deficit issues right now he, he's leaving a budget in the black but two things uh the pension uh, and health care obligations and the lack of union contracts he's kind of leaving a pretty big meatball out there for the next administration but the unions outsmarted themselves they decided we're not going to negotiate with this guy who wants us to give back meaning to pay some of their health care and change some of the pension rules we'll wait for democrat so they endorsed bill thompson and chris quinn some jack lou Nobody, none of the public unions supported de Blasio. They failed to make the right political choice. But this is a great city. You can hire your boss. That's the theory the unions had. We're going to pick the person we want to negotiate with. Well, they failed. They, so the UFT supported Thompson. He lost. District 37, they supported Lou. He lost. Okay? Quinn got others. Like, they lost. So now it's de Blasio. But let, you know, this, this myth that he didn't do it, no. The union said, we don't want to negotiate with him because he's too tough. We'll wait for a soft Democrat. Let's just see if they can get so much money. The, the well isn't that rich. And, look, most New Yorkers pay for their own health insurance. Most city employees don't. That's a fact. That's not a negotiable fact. That's the truth. Sooner or later, you know, when you go into a hospital, you have a copay, you have two class of people, public employees and everyone else. Okay, Mitchell Moss uh, of New York University Wagner School. Uh, urban observer, great, uh, really a keen observer of New York City, both uh, sociologically and politically. Thank you for joining us here on Spin Class, Mitchell. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. This is Spin Class. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, NahumSiegel.com, JMInTheAM.org, and we are joined by Ross Barkin of the Barkin Report and the New York Observer, who is going to really update us with the latest going on in the political machinations of the New York City Council, which is that other entity other than the mayor mayorship that we've just examined. Because I think uh, even though we're taking retrospective of the Bloomberg days, we also got to look forward to the next administration here in New York City. Ross, welcome back to Spin Class. Hi, thanks for uh, having me back. Great to be on. So let's uh, set the stage for a second as far as what it means. And we've talked about this for a couple weeks now, a city council speaker election. But just kind of run down the factions here. 
Okay, city council speaker is elected. There are 51 city council uh, people, mm-hmm. and yep. uh, and there's a whole bunch of different groupings. So go through the, like the tribal politics here with regard to the city council. Sure. You know who's out there. You know, and what are the what are these individual factions and 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 groups want? Well, in this race, you had a you a few one. Are, are the county organizations, the Democratic county organizations, and there's really three that matter. I won't jump into too much detail about why they matter, but it's Bro- Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx. Those are the three. Basically, you know, they have some control over their members and, and can have a block. And the, the other force at play here was the Progressive Caucus, and, and they're a, a liberal, a very liberal block. A lot of them are newly elected members. And they came in with about twenty, about twenty-two strong votes. And just uh, just yesterday, an accord was reached to basically uh, pick a new council speaker. They don't officially vote till January eighth, but an agreement was reached where uh, a councilwoman in East Harlem, Melissa Mark Devrito, would become speaker. And Brooklyn County and the Progressive and Bill De Blasio cut a deal. And that's where we stand currently, and I, I can get into more detail on that. Yes, please get please get into more detail. We want sure. <laughs> we want to you know who are the winners, who are the losers if this holds. And I think you know one thing to keep in mind, you know, is we're sitting here Thursday night, and uh, we got a long way to go before the actual vote is taken, which is January eighth. Yeah. Uh, but if this, but I think one thing that I that we saw earlier today is that uh, Joe Crowley, the chairman of the Queens Democratic Party, arguably the most powerful chairman. Of uh, it, and also the number five Democrat in the United States House of Representatives. So obviously a guy with a lot of clout said the race isn't over. So if we have to look at it right now, uh, the race isn't over. But who right now would you say is you know is on top and who who isn't? The, who are the haves the, and who are the haves nots? The, 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 ha- the haves right now are, are, are the Brooklyn uh, Democratic Party, their delegation, because they made the deal. The Progressive Caucus, the block of 22 liberal caucus members, many of whom do hail from Brooklyn, so there's a bit of an overlap. And Bill de Blasio, who really stepped in at the end, called individual members and did something really unprecedented, which was meddle in a council speaker's race and get the council speaker he wants, Melissa Mark Viverito, who was an early endorser of his, very early, the first council member. And the losers right now, certainly the Bronx County organization, Queens County may get something thrown their way when it's all said and done, like a committee chairmanship. And that, that's what everyone wants, committee chairmanships and patronage jobs in the city council, the central staff. But right now, Brooklyn is in the driver's seat. Bill de Blasio is in the driver's seat. This progressive caucus is in the driver's seat. Queens and the Bronx on the outside looking in. And moderate members as well, moderate members who didn't join in this deal um, who are kind of left, uh, you know, waiting for crumbs to be thrown their way. This isn't over, but it's very close to being over, I would say. Okay, well, what is the Progressive Caucus, and who are the moderate members? What does it mean to be a progressive in the city council? What does it mean to be a moderate? It probably doesn't mean the same as being a moderate in Washington these days. Uh, no. and, and I think, you know, one thing that you see from this power struggle is that the even within the Democratic Party, since the the Democratic Party predominates uh, in New York City, and the primaries are the primary decider of who gets elected in most uh-huh. districts, uh, you see a struggle between between moderate and left, or maybe left and left. And that, that that's a, that's a similar dynamic here. The Progressive Caucus they they have a website. They have tenants. Uh, right now, or technically, the caucus itself isn't that large. I don't know off the top of my head, 10 members. But what they did was, which is very smart, with the assistance of labor unions, uh, 1199 in particular, they reached out to, to other sort of left-leaning to hard-left members, some who are newly elected, and the council elected over 20 new members, which is important to, to note. So there's a lot of turnover here. And because of term blocked, limits, of course. Because of term limits, yes. So, so basically, this caucus, which is a liberal body, and by liberal I mean, you know, they talk about income inequality is very important to them. Um, there are certain rules reforms in the city council they support, maybe even weakening some of the powers of the speaker, making things quote unquote more transparent. So it, it, it is a left versus kind of the center, I guess. And and most members of the block of, of the caucus are, are are to the left certainly, but in this in this. Uh, 
coalition they built with Bill de Blasio in Brooklyn, you actually have some very conservative members, including uh, Chaim Deutsch, who some of your listeners may know, a conservative uh, Orthodox Jewish Brooklyn councilman. He joined in this block as well. So while the, the, the caucus, the Harvard, is very liberal, to get to those 30 votes, which was past the majority that they needed to potentially crown a speaker, they actually roped in a few conservative members from Brooklyn mostly to make the deal happen. And the thing is, you have to get pat, you have to get at least 26 votes to make a speaker. Last night, they put out a statement, 30 council members on the record saying they support Melissa Mark Frito, who is very liberal. Uh, so, so that, 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 that that's kind of where we're at. Now, is Melissa Mark Viverito really that liberal compared to the alternatives? I think that, you know, Dan Gorodnik, I guess, is the last standing alternative. Everybody else seems potentially has, have dropped out. Is, is, are the differences between the two really that, that stark? I think that one thing that's been reported out there, uh, possibly by you, is that, you know, everybody's kind of looking to the left, uh, as far as how, how progressive they can be to kind of, uh, win over as many votes as possible. So really, what what are the qualitative uh, differences between the two city council speaker candidates? The, the qualitative differences, obviously, both are liberals. Melissa Mark Viverito is very much on the hard left. I'd say she's to the left of the Blasio. She keeps Occupy. I think she's an Occupy Wall Street poster, you know, in her office. Um, you know, she refused she, to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, it was reported. Yeah, yes, that there, there's yes, that there, there's an issue with her not saying the Pledge of Allegiance. She's, um, you know, very, very outspoken and fiery about income inequality. Very, very much pro labor. You know, she was out there at the get-go endorsing Bill De Blasio when he was the liberal candidate who wasn't going anywhere, and, and she re- is reaping their rewards of that. Dan Gorodnik is a very, very smart. Man, uh, certainly a liberal, but much more understated. He didn't endorse anyone in the mayor's race, never went out there for de Blasio. I think he, he endorsed the general election when everyone endorsed, but in the primary, he didn't go out on a limb for de Blasio. So, you know, he's a Manhattan guy, you know, an east side Manhattan guy. He, some people say, sort of embodies the values of the New York Times editorial board, which means he's liberal, but, you know, Maybe not on the hard left, if that makes sense. Well, Melissa Mark Viverito is ideologically pure, I would say, more so than even Bill de Blasio, and may force him more to the left. Well, that seems to be something that's potentially dangerous for New York City. If you're looking at you know, people who feel that de Blasio was, you know, even though he ran hard to the left, was kind of being certainly in his public pronouncements, kind of being very centrist. Some of his appointments so far have been pretty centrist, uh, looking towards, you know, the, the issues with governing. If you have a, somebody who I think for your saying is a little bit, uh, I, I'll use the word radical a little bit, but pure, uh, is, is that going to be a big problem vis-a-vis the agenda, moving things forward? It, 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 it's a big question. I think there's concerns in the city council and from political observers that the counterweight um, to the mayor is not necessarily bare. I mean, she's going to support all of Bill de Blasio's agenda. She, she, at least in the beginning, won't be pushing back. And she may push him further left because the, this progressive caucus, like I said, is newly uh, ascendant. They want to pass like a, you know, a new living wage bill and there are other, other um, things that they want to put on the table. And, um, you know, it, it's definitely it's a concern for for, for the for, for political observers, and it could be a problem for De Blasio because you know he has someone who, if he wants to move toward the center to govern, she's going to be pushing him to the left, and how that push and pull plays out, we don't know. And she's very ambitious herself, and I'm sure she wants to be mayor someday, and that could bring its own complications. Uh, you know, never know. <laughs> uh, one thing that was interesting from my perspective, and let's just, I guess, take for granted that perhaps the race is over, uh, not like Joe Crowley says, that kind of, okay, this is put to bed, is this public campaign for it, which I don't recall back in 2001 having that. And remember, Bill de Blasio was one of the candidates back then. But I don't remember this really public campaign between the candidates for speaker. It was much more backroom back then. What, what's changed? It, they, the Progressive Caucus influence, so one of their one of their big, uh, you know, p- 
principles is transparency. So three members of this of this caucus organized a, a series of public forums for the city council uh, speakers race, which never happened before, certainly not in 2005 when Bill de Blasio was a candidate, and certainly not before then. It was a bit of a charade. At the end of the day, this was still a backroom contest in every sense of the word. Progressive caucus did, did um, a lot to kind of keep things under wraps, as did the county leaders, as did everyone else who's making deals. I mean, we were reporters really had to sniff out, you know, people behind the scenes and, and no one really going record. So it was a bad, and make no mistake, this was a backroom contest, but the veneer was different. You had the, these forums, which I think were good to enlighten the public. And, and the way this went down really was unprecedented in a lot of ways, but not because of the forums, but because of how the deal was made with a mayor intervening directly in the, in the business of a legislature, which really hasn't happened in a modern uh, city municipal history, you know, going back to Koch. So let's talk for a second about Frank Sedio. Okay, Frank Sedio, sure. the Brooklyn chairman, and you, you cover Brooklyn, so you're, you know, it's, I don't mind asking you some very Brooklyn specific no, questions. Go ahead, please. Uh, Frank Sedio came in, replaced Vito Lopez famously, kind of midterm, if you will. Vito Lopez kind of pushed out. Uh, we'll, we'll leave that aside. Frank Sedio coming in, uh, to a very, very fractured party, doesn't control all his votes because, uh, there, there are, you know, quite a few members who he who don't vote with the with the party chairman. And but Frank said he was not known as a progressive caucus type guy. He's more not of an old, old school type guy. So why is it that he and of course he makes a commitment to the other county chairs that he's going to stick with them, meaning the meaning Brooklyn and Queens. And. What happens overnight that Frank Sedio, who is, you know, throws his lot in with the progressives, who you might think is a nemesis for him, and then turns around and turns his back on, on his colleagues Crowley and Heastie? It's a fascinating question, and I'll definitely I'll answer it. I, I say also, and of course, you know, I, I should mention, of course, that yeah. Frank Sedio supported Bill Thompson, who you know, yes. who's a, a different Brooklynite. Bill, yes. Bill De Blasio yes. also from Brooklyn, but Sedio supported Bill Thompson. So, so um, what, I, what I will say to that, and I actually wrote about this today. If you, if you go on the New York Observer website, uh, politicker dot com, you can actually read the depth story. I, I covered this. What I will say is. Brooklyn, like you said, of, of the three counties that matter, was probably the most vulnerable, didn't have the most co- coherent uh, block, let's say. So Melissa Mark Viverito lobbied Brooklyn very hard. Her people did. Labor did. Bill de Blasio, who's a Brooklyn guy, understood that as well. So what they did was, you know, they, they realized if they were going to make a deal with the county organization to get to a majority, and they needed to make a deal. They, they did not have 26 votes, I don't think, without making a deal with the county organization. It turned out Brooklyn was the best county to deal with because Frank Sedio would be amenable. Joe, Joe Crowley and, and even Carl Hastie in the Bronx keep a very tight ship to an extent. They, they kind of rule by intimidation almost. And Sedio is a jovial guy. He's not at all like Vito Lopez. Ironically, he's done what Vito Lopez could not do, which was get a, a deal for Brooklyn. So what happened was, I mean, from what I understand, the de, de Blasio came to Frank um, and said and offered this, um, and as, as Melissa's people did as well, they all, they worked together. And, and Frank realized he wanted to do what was best for Brooklyn. And Frank goes back with these other county leaders. But Frank, I think, was haunted by the memories of 2005 when Vito missed out on the spoils for Brooklyn. So Frank wanted to take the best deal. And the way it was put to him was, Frank, like, uh, you know, Melissa is close to having the votes, and Bill wants Melissa. Do you want to get on board and make this happen? This will be very good for you. And, and Frank's a deal maker. He's not, he's not an ideologue. He, he's not going to reject Phil de Blasio for being too liberal, or even Melissa for being too liberal. So I think what happened was he saw this on the table, saw it was a good deal, and he had the guts to pull the trigger. And I think a lot of people are impressed that he pulled this trigger. And now it is in line to get his people some very good things. So we're talking to Ross Barkin here on Spin Class, NahumSingle.com, JamieandAm.org. And we got, we're getting that to that two-minute warning. Uh, so give us, uh, give us an idea, Ross, about who is going to be in the driver's seat here. Uh, there are three Republicans in the council, and I think uh, – at least one of them, I read, is already committed to yes. to to the progressive side, which is interesting in and of itself, right? Oh, very interesting. And the rumor afoot, 
which I, I, I think is a valid rumor. Again, nothing confirmed, I will caution, is that Eric Ulrich was promised a committee chairmanship, and Republicans, being the minority, don't chair committees. So this would be a huge thing. Perhaps the waterfront committee is what they're talking about. So, so Ulrich, who, who had very harshly criticized Melissa Mark Vivarito a month ago for not reciting the pledge, now is getting a committee. So he's doing very well. Brooklyn's in the driver's seat. The progressives are in the driver's seat. And then Bill de Blasio making this happen is in the driver's seat as well. So it, it's those three, and I think I think Brooklyn's in a very good place. If you're if you're a Politico in Brooklyn, it's a very good day to be you. So you also reported that our friend David Greenfield is arguably in store for one of the most powerful committee, at least in my mind, land use, which is yes. has enormous sway over what happens in the city. So yes. I think yeah, yes. now was was David involved in actually cutting the deal? Um, David is very close to Frank Setio. David's a very savvy. Guy and I have no doubt David was close to this deal, um, you know, guiding things along. He wasn't the only player; there are many players. But, but David is a deal maker, and David's very close to County. And I think the understanding was that if if Brooklyn was going to get on this deal, people who are close to County needed to come out ahead, and David is one of those people. So land use uh, is very strong possibilities, as I reported. He's looking at finance. I think they're probably going to give finance to a Queens progressive is what I'm hearing and maybe, you know, work from there. But um, he, so he, Mark Weber and Mark Weber and Dan Garodnik are potentially left with nothing, I say. Uh, and Mark, Mark Weprin may do okay. Dan Garodnik could be left with very little. I think he's a loser in this, is Dan Garodnik. He may get very little. Well, I guess he should have won for controller when he had the chance. And, uh, Ross, I'm going to leave it there because we because sure. ha- we're out of time, but we'll pick it up uh, as we get closer to January 8th and beyond. Ross Barkin from the Politicker, the Barkin Report. Follow him on Twitter at Ross Barkin. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Great. Thanks, thanks for having me. Okay, we're wrapping up another Thursday night here on Spin Class. We did a lot tonight, so a lot to digest. Thanks for joining us. We'll speak to you next week.